seven of the Sleeper in the Butts. It is Monday, February 8th. I'm your host, Paul Spohr, joined by Eno Saris. Eno, football is officially put to bed. It's baseball season. How's it going? I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's go. It's, it's, I'm drafting. Got my first draft. I did my first draft pick of the season just now. The two of us uh, took Eddie Rosario with our first pick, which is number 13 in a 20-team league with 28 keepers, meaning that we took Eddie Rosario with the 589th pick or something. So. Yeah, so pr- pretty light. Because in case That's you listen, we like. <laughs> yeah, if you listen to our outfield episode, we didn't speak terribly favorably on uh, Rosario, but when you get to a certain point, you're looking at a double-double, homers and, and steals, and and it becomes an enticing uh, profile there. So we went with him. We're, we've got a team that's looking at this year, and you know, in that first round, there have been some college players taken that aren't even in the majors yet. Meanwhile, we're focused on on 2016. But it's nice to get a 24-year-old while also having, you know, the foot in the uh, in one side for this year and kind of the future piece. So I thought he was a really good pick for us. We got another pick coming up in a little bit, and then we're off for a round. We've we've talked about this league here and there, our dynasty league here. Um, it's been a very interesting experience for me. I've been really enjoying it, and it goes deep, man. I mean, if if, if you want to get into the depths of baseball and that's the kind of league you want to play and you got to be in a dynasty league there's just no way you're going to get the same feel out of even a 15 team mixed league uh, unless you're doing this dynasty with these with these killer keepers I've, I've had a really enjoyable time with it for sure but we're going to be talking all sorts uh, of league type players for today we're going to dive back into the pitchers i promise some nl pitchers uh, kind of on a par with what we did with American League pitchers on Friday, so we're going to be doing that. We're also going to uh, take a couple of emails, and then we'll just uh, we'll talk we'll talk a little bit about that game from yesterday. Actually, more the uh, the surrounding piece of that game, and I'll I'll get your favorite Super Bowl commercial as we we close it out. But as always, I want folks to please follow us on Twitter at Spore S P O R E R at Enosaris E N O S A R R I S. You can hit us up with questions there, and just talk general baseball. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. You are just still steady crushing it, and I, I I can't say it enough, and I really appreciate it. Five stars, 319 reviews, 281 of those are fives. I mean, it's just been fantastic, you know, and I, I really appreciate everyone who listens, takes the time to go in there, put the review, put some commentary. Uh, it's been great. So I, I think we got to dive right in. I'm, I'm giddy. I'm absolutely giddy on February 8th here that the, it is officially the baseball season, at least for me, now that football is 100% put to bed. And we're going to talk our favorite thing again, pitchers. So like I said last week, we talked top 25 or outside the top 25, and I inadvertently did all but one uh, AL pitchers. We talked to Adam Wainwright and then like 15 AL pitchers in a row. So I figure, you know what, got to give the NL some love. There's folks out there playing in an NL only league and tons of people playing mixed leagues. So we're going to do the same thing. We're looking outside our top 25 composite rankings and asking some questions about these guys in, in terms of uh, what our interest is. I want to get your, your 2016 outlook on some of these guys. I want to start with one that is really intriguing, but also a bit scary. And that's Carlos Martinez because the end of the season ailing with a, with a shoulder injury, which put him on the shelf, didn't pitch in the playoffs. He's said to be about 90% as of January 18th and, and close to throwing. Where do you currently stand on him after a breakout season that ended with some heartbreak? I mean, it was like the most sexy time last year in terms so of the, the changeup really took another step forward. He talked to 
he talked to uh, Pedro Martinez about the change of grip and a little bit about, you know, he has bad mechanics. He has bad mechanics. He flies open. Mm-hmm. If you look at where, how his shoulder and where his arm is when his, when his uh, foot lands, it, his arm is struggling to catch up. So that, that, that means that his shoulder is doing more work than it should be in that part of the process, I think. So that's, it's not surprising at all to me that he has that shoulder injury. And, you know, I can say that without, with also, I hope you guys understand that I also don't think that it's such an exact science or anything, you know, injuries. But I think that, you know, even if you go to Pedro Martinez and he says, you're flying open too much and you need to work, work on that. And here's the thing to work on it. I think, that means something. <laughs> no, so, I, I, uh, Pedro talks you know, about loving Carlos Martinez and just right. thinking that he can be excellent, which he can be. And the only the only thing that we're worried about really is is uh, is what his uh, injuries, what his what his injury is going to do, and and if it's going to change how he pitches, and if it's going to be something that sticks around for, for a long time. So, I mean, that is uh, those are legit questions. Um, for what it's worth. Um, you know his velocity wasn't down at the end of the season, so that's a that's a big marker. People say that that's like sort of a lagging marker, but at least we don't see a lagging marker. At least we don't see that he was pitching through uh, decreased velocity and and further hurting himself. So whenever they caught it, it seems like they caught it at a good moment. Uh, his release point. I'm, I'm looking through these injury factors that um, on BaseballHeatMaps.com, Jeff Zimmerman housed uh, Josh Kalk's old injury zone, which is. If you, you use release point data, velocity data, and you can look for inconsistencies in a pitcher's approach, and, and that, that can lead to injury. Josh Cobb now, now works for the Rays, so it's, it's, a decent, it's a decent thing that has come out of the blogosphere recently. And, um, you know, Carlos Martinez is not always around the zone, so it's not that weird that he, was, that he wasn't show, throwing pitches in the zone of the league average. But his, his zone percentage to himself was, was, fairly, uh, was fairly flat. And then his release point, you know, didn't didn't wasn't all crazy all over the place late in games. So I, I would say they caught it in time. The thing that worries me is that it's 90 percent, not 100. Almost every pitcher will tell you that they're doing fine. They want the ball, blah, blah, blah. So that's a little bit concerning. But and then there's the fact that his delivery might lead to more injuries. That's concerning. But the stuff is so amazing that if you get any discount on him based on the injury, I think you have to take it. I agree. And, and, and that's kind of. The issue here is that, you know, the upside is, is so high that uh, in the right league, the, the price can be at such a level where you just have to take the gamble. Now, the NFBC is currently not that market, in my opinion. He's going, Carlos Martinez is going as the 108th pick off the board, the 28th pitcher. And yeah, it's outside the top 25, just like our rankings. But I, I, I don't know. I'm. I'm a little bit cautious there. First off, he's going right ahead of somebody I love for next year, Garrett Richards. So just right there, I'm at least flipping those two. Uh, but there are some other guys kind of a little bit lower than than Martinez that I would probably opt for, including you know probably even Masahiro Tanaka, who also carries some of, of his own injury risk, but that I trust a little bit more between those two. Francisco Liriano, another guy with kind of that really electric upside, but also definitely tangible downside. But uh, at least Liriano's done it more, kind of proved it more than Martinez. This was really Martinez's first good year. So I don't know. I'm, I'm probably, I probably got him outside of the top 30 right now. 
and and I'll, I'll kind of assess it as it goes through the goes through spring training and we see how healthy Carlos Martinez is. But where exactly are you taking him right now? How, how high can you get him up there on your list? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'll take him over Garrett Richards and those guys just because when he's in, I think he's the best option. Masahiro Tanaka, uh, I think maybe that's the harder one because he's been good one in as well. So, you know, Garrett Richards doesn't, hasn't given us the strikeout rate yet. Um, well, he, I mean, 14 he did. And, and yeah, it, it, it jumped down last year. I'm, I'm giving Richards a little bit of a break on the uh, on the knee. The fact is, he didn't really miss any time. He kind of had to pitch through it, but still made his 32 turns, 207 innings. I don't know. I, I, I'm just really big on Richards this year, and we've only seen it for one year with, with Martinez. It was great. I love the combination of a 24% strikeout rate and a 55% ground ball rate. But that whip was high. The 129 uh, whip, you know. He doesn't have wasn't even good. He lets those balls in play. You're right. I would take him over uh, the second class of, of sleepers, the you know past uh, Rysel Iglesias, I think, um, and uh, and take him sort of thirty-five-ish ahead of the Jordano Ventura and Taiwan Walkers of the world, just because he's shown more than those guys. Mm. And what do we know about Ventura and Walkers, you know, injury rates anyway? So no, I, I, I'm with you there. I've got I've got Martinez above them. I'm just just below that 35 range that you're talking about. I've got Carlos Martinez at 39, so still in the top 40. Could move up if, if we get some encouraging signs in the spring, but for now, I'm playing it a little bit cautiously. Let's jump to the other end of the spectrum, at least in terms of age and probably upside at that point. James Shields did have a career-best 25% K rate last year, but he doubled his 2014 walk rate up to 9.4%, uh, yikes, and allowed way too many home runs. What, what, what happened? with him we would have thought going to the nl and san diego in particular would have really helped and instead it was kind of a bland year that was actually saved by the strikeouts instead of enhanced by it what what do you take on uh, what's your take on james shield well you know one thing he's always been homer prone so i think that's the the long term you know that's the that's the uh the real the, the sort of the big answer is he's always been homer prone because I think it's because he's a, a righty throwing changeups inside to righties, and you know when those don't break completely right, they they end up being home runs. So I, I think that's part of it. Then you know there is a slight thing. I mean he he threw a lot more. He threw more curveballs last year than he threw in any other season, and you know the curveball doesn't give up a ton of change. It doesn't give up a ton of home runs, but it is a change in pitching mix. And, you know, it could have been part of what was going on. You know, last year, the, the changeup and the forcing were the ones that gave up the home runs. But maybe he became more predictable. It seems like he wouldn't become more predictable if you're throwing more curveballs. But um, I don't know. It's what? just uh, he has 1% home run rates on all of his pitches except for the sinker. So, you know, he does just give up home runs. Maybe he's just, you know, has good like control and then he keeps it in the zone but he doesn't have great command within the zone exactly and and i think maybe shields was kind of showing that better command 
for that run that finished with the Rays and then went with the Royals because he was kind of keeping his home run rate under one, something that Shields had struggled to do kind of in the early part of his career, had that period where, okay, your, your command is a little bit tighter, but now 33 last year, 34 going into this year, the command is fading a little bit. And even I would say both the command and control faded last year. Again, he doubled his walk rate to a career worst, 9.4%. So a lot of warning signs there for Shields. Uh, lefties absolutely obliterated him too. That that changeup that used to be regarded as as arguably the best in the game or definitely Stop. one of the best is really killing him now. And I'm wondering, do you see any sort of rebound for Shields or is 2015 more of who he is now with uh, that that kind of prime period that he finished with the Rays and Royals being a thing of the past. Well, he still got 20% whiffs on the changeup, but he got a lot of whiffs overall. Now, 20% whiffs on the changeup still makes it good, but it's not, you know, top five, top 10 type stuff anymore like it used to be. But with the addition, additional use of the curveball, which has actually been turned out to be a decent pitch for him, the knuckle curve, you know, I, I think it's nice to see all those extra strikeouts. Some of those must have come off of bad players and eight, eighth hitters and ninth hitters, but those strikeouts are nice, and you know it is also nice to see just how much, how much longevity, how much longevity, how how longevitous he's been. Uh, he's, I don't know if that's a word, but I like it. <laughs> but he's, you know, he's he's two hundred plus innings since the get go, and uh, he he believes it has a lot to do with the um, the the arm health regimen that they gave him in, in Tampa Bay. And he's just been religious on that one, and he's giving you 200 innings. So I think there is some value to that. I think he's going to be above replacement no matter what he does next year. And if he's going to be above replacement and, and just you know shore up your staff, it's kind of like a really, really good NL only number two where you just slot him in, you get all that beef, you get the 200 innings, you know, and you get the strikeouts, and you let him accrue those counting stats. But in like a mixed leagues – it seems like more and more he's more of like a three or a four, and only then just because everyone else is out on him, and you're thinking the, the walk rate's going to get better and he's not going to give up as many home runs. Yeah, if there was ever a time to buy, it is right now because the market has definitely soured on James Shields after really spiking last year, again, because he went to San Diego. Uh, his teammate Andrew Kashner also spiked his Ks, but also his walks and 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 suffered as well um, with his homers jumping up as well. You know, 0.5 homers per nine in 2014. He'd always been uh, pretty good, at least as a starter at limiting home runs. But then last year was up at 0.9 and it really took its toll on on Kashner's left on base rate. He couldn't strand runners at all. Just 66 percent of the runners he allowed were stranded and the ERA jumped almost two full runs to 434. The whip was a terrible 144 so it's almost like the added strikeouts weren't even worth it at least with shields it was worth it and kind of salvaged his value there was really nothing to salvage andrew Kashner's value because he also went six and 16 so everything fantasy wise really broke down for him except for the added k's but it was only a 21 percent strikeout rate so it's not like you're you're doing backflips over that what the hell happened to Kashner? somebody i loved going into the year last year what do you think you know, someone asked me recently if I thought about the catcher a lot, especially when a catcher changes teams and, and there's a good framer coming to where there, you know, where there's a bad framing situation before. Oh. And I said that I didn't normally think of, of that as a going into things, that I didn't normally think of, of uh, the catcher as being able to sort of change the fortunes of an entire pitching staff. But 
if you look at what happened in San Diego with all of the pitchers there and with Derek Norris coming to town, and then you have to square that with the fact that nobody I've talked to, a lot of it's been off the record, but nobody I've talked to has said that they enjoyed throwing to Derek Norris. And then, uh, then you know that Derek Norris is not a good framer. He's not maybe like very bottom of the heat, but he's not a good framer. And you know, he's therefore he's not a good framer. He's not calling games the way that his pitchers like it, like him to. And um, you start to think about, well, here are these two high-profile guys that had have had great walk rates their whole career, complaining about the framing of their catcher and their you know their walk rates and stuff. So, you know, I'm willing to give them a bit of a pass. The problem with Kashner is that I think that the ceiling has gone down in the meantime. I, I've, I appraise his ceiling, ceiling differently. I think we've talked about this a little bit, that maybe his secondary pitches aren't as good as we thought they were. His swinging strike rates overall have been unexciting for a while. And uh, maybe he is actually just a power sinker guy, and he needs to go back to getting six strikeouts per nine with a 55% ground ball rate. Exactly. Uh, he, yeah. By the way, we should mention that Yasmani Grandal was the catcher that Norris replaced, and he is good at framing and calling games, and he is widely uh, regarded as a catcher that, that pitchers do want to throw to. So that's the change there, too. It's not just necessarily uh, all on Norris, because like you said, he's not necessarily bottom of the heap, but Grandal was near the top of the heap, if not the, the top himself. And so that's the difference there. You're, you're moving from elite to you know, below average, and that's a big jump. So the problem is, you know, Norris isn't going anywhere. So uh, we kind of are counting on him to maybe get better to help these teammates uh, because, he, you know, Tyson Ross didn't even have as good of a year as, as we would have expected out of him either. He didn't have a bad year, and it was certainly better than the other two guys, but he definitely, you know, was uh, – you know, not a far cry, but he was uh, a good bit different. Tyson Ross was from his 2014 breakout, going from a 281 ERA to a 326. The whip jumped from 121 to 131. That's where the big difference was with him. So, you know, people stop. People stop swinging at Tyson Ross's slider is a big deal. You know, it had about the same per per swing whiff rates, but then you know they just weren't swinging as much. So I think that's strikes. I think that's, that's a little bit about stealing strikes because you have to get in those good counts where. There are swinging counts. There are counts in which batters want to swing, and those are those counts that Tyson Ross wants to get to so he can throw that slider because it's probably, like, by itself, it might be the best pitch in baseball because everyone knows it's coming, and they still miss it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That that and, like, Dickie's knuckler is like, well, here's a pitch that gets thrown thousands of times, and yet, you know, people still miss it a lot. So I, I think people not swinging at his slider is a big deal. And I think that could still be related to the catcher, just like you're saying. It's talking about getting into those counts. It's also talking about calling a game. Is he calling the slider in times that people always think that he's going to call the slider? So I don't know if a year is going to solve all of these issues. You know, he, maybe Derek Norris is still going to be there, you know, to, to start the season at least. And and Hedges was so bad with Austin Hedges behind him, was so bad with the, bad with the bat that I don't think that San Diego is like, oh, yeah, we're going to, you know, just ramp up Austin Hedges' plate appearances. Yeah, That's you, you, you could justify that. it. You, I mean, it's one thing coming in that we knew Hedges wasn't going to be a great bat, 
that's one thing, but a 463 OPS is quite another. I mean, yeah. that's, we want that to be a slugging percentage, obviously, on the high end there, and it was his OPS for crying out loud. Only 152 plate appearances, but again, Hedges did not bring in a pedigree that suggests that the hitting is going to get much better. He had a uh, 706 career OPS in the minors, 1,284 yeah. plate appearances. Just not that good. So um, of those three. So, so I, I don't know. So, so like which of those three is the problem more framing? Which one's more game calling? Because I feel like game calling, if, if Derek Norris is not listening, to, is not reading, you know, baseball perspectives and fan graphs, which I don't think he is. So if he's not reading those, then he doesn't know maybe. And if the team doesn't tell him about framing, then then maybe he, he doesn't know or he doesn't care. It's not like the Ionetta situation. Ionetta found out and was like, oh, crap, I I want to be good at, at baseball. And so he, he read my piece on Jason Castro's butt, and he and he got better at framing. Well, so I think with – Doris could do that if somebody tells him about it, I think. And then also – uh, I think game calling is something that just naturally gets better because he's just gonna he's gonna know Kashner better exactly. and he's gonna call things in better order. And Shields, he'll he'll have to figure out something with those three. Uh, Ross, I don't know how much can game calling help See, if there's if there's two two signs. <laughs> no, that's precisely what I was gonna say though. I think I think it's Kashner and Shields that really were impacted by it by the game calling piece because you're talking about fastball. And, and and slider for Ross that I think the framing is where it would come in to be a bigger deal for him again kind of catching those those sliders yeah, perfectly and maybe stealing some strikes if they aren't doing the swing and miss or you know maybe there was a little bit of of call a fastball when you want to call a slider or vice versa but again I would put that a lot more on the Cashner and Shields where they've got four or five pitches to choose from with Ross, I, I just think that, uh, like you said, they're laying off of it because they're not afraid of getting that strike stolen if it's a right-hander right on the outside of the plate um, or uh, under their hands if it's a lefty bringing that slider in. So, And maybe that's why Ross had a better season, too. Again, he had a 326 ERA. He wasn't as hampered by the changeover as the other two guys were. So that's something to keep an eye on. Of the three, they obviously have different costs for sure. Ross is the most expensive. He's the 25th pitcher off the board. Shields is the 36th pitcher off the board. And then Kashner is the 74th pitcher off the board. So at their prices, who do you like most? What was, what was the uh, price for Shields? Uh, he is the 30, 36th, 36th pitcher off the board. I wish that number was lower because then I would pick him. Yeah, if it, it was a f- uh, like just like in forty-five the even. Yeah, because thirty and thirty-six. We were just talking about guys. I have the auction calculator up, and uh, for thirty-six for pitchers, Iglesias is thirty-three, Corbin is thirty-four, Cole Hamels is thirty-five, Scott Casimir is thirty-six. So you know, I think Shields. Um, you know, doesn't uh, doesn't quite rise to that level. Now, the auction calculator has, uh, yeah, the auction calculator has shields in the 60s, I believe. I mean, it makes sense because if that ERA is going to be up there like that, ERA was something that, you know, really drove his value when he was at his best because he didn't have those big strikeout rates. So shields, oh, no. shields is an interesting one, especially he's also going to be 34 years old. And, and there's that point. And I don't know what what the point is where it goes from from being a positive to a negative. But there's that point where, hey, all those all those innings that they have, hey, he's a workhorse. You can rely on him for 200 innings. And then all of a sudden it flips over to, oh my God, he has all those innings. He's going to he's going to break down. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it, I don't know exactly the tipping point, but it happens. And uh, well, 
Shields Shields is forty sixth with the projection that has him with a three six eight ERA, one two four WHIP. Basically, his career number is plus a strikeout. Um, uh, so eight point five strikeouts for nine. I don't know. That's actually I think that's a, that's a compelling argument. At least his projections, which aren't amazing, uh, have him at forty six, and his draft value is thirty four. Whereas Tyson Ross, I think, is getting close, closer to his value. And then Andrew Cashman, I'm not sure his upside is much more than a 50. And in the 70s, there are a lot of upside plays that are that could be aces. You know what Exactly. I mean? Once you get past 50, it is hard to make distinctions in that you could look at 66 and and like him every bit as much as you like 50. For example, this, this one happens to be uh, Colin McHugh. And Ian Kennedy, and I prefer McHugh, who's 51, and, and Kennedy, who's 66. Um, but I would not be blown away if somebody's like, actually, I prefer Kennedy. Oh, yeah, but that's a huge difference between 51 and 66. Oh, and look at look at the names that are right, like by the auction calculator, what the names are. Uh, Cashman is Cashner is actually 66, which you said. What was he off the board? Seventy fourth off the board for Cash. Okay, so okay, so there's a there's an eight pick, which is a little bit less than Shields, so I, I, I or about the same as Shields. But in terms of who you're picking around there, I'd say there's lots of guys I prefer by the auction calculator: Lance McCullers, Kevin Gossman, Sonny. Well, Sonny Gray is a. Let's co- just he's going to cost you a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Let's just uh, take that off the board. Anyway, by the auction calculator, in the neighborhood of Andrew Cashner, Lance McCullers, Kevin Gaussman, uh, Aaron Nola, Luis Severino, even Julio Teron has done more than Cashner. Oh, yeah. Been, you know, so, uh, you know, and then I love John Lamb and Brandon Finnegan, which I uh, might, we'll, not we'll, necessarily we'll, the same round or the same number of dollars, but you could wait a little bit and take a guy like Finnegan or Eduardo Rodriguez or John Lamb and, and bet on more upside and spend a little less. You know what I mean? It's just an uncomfortable place for me uh, to take cash. Because if, if I was – he kind of represents to me like a boring uh, high-floor guy, except he's not high-floor because we know about the injuries and we know about the bad plays. So, exactly. You know, if Shields was Cashner and he was being drafted in the 60s like that, then I'd be all over him and I would take Shields in the 50s and then – you know, wait around and then try to get some high upside arms to sort of pair with Shields, like a Shields Lamb connection or a Shields Severino. If if people aren't in on Severino, maybe everyone's going to be in on Severino. Shields Nola. I think that'd be really fun because you'd have, you know, you'd have innings and you'd have upside and you kind of pair them together. But Cashner doesn't really represent either to me anymore. There are going to be some leagues where Shields falls, and and that's going to be where you want to pounce. I mean, his highest pick. Uh, and these NFBC drafts is around 185, which would slot him right where you're talking as the 51st guy. Actually, that matches McHugh's ADP. So, you know, again, that was at least only one draft, maybe a, maybe a handful. It's not going to be a universal thing. But if you start to see Shields move down the board, don't be afraid to jump in and take him. I know it's boring. You're not going to get the oohs and ahs that, that everyone likes getting in their draft. But sometimes you don't need that. You just need... 200 steady innings that allow you the ability to take your Severino, your Rizel, your your McCullers, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And too or, many times, and too many times, honestly, you know, to 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 be introspective here for a second, too many times I have forgotten about the James Shields types and just littered my my pitching staff with McCullers and Gaussman and uh, you know all these guys that I think, oh, I'm got them, I've got them all figured out. 
And then, you know, uh, even the guy, even though I think that I can find pitching, they don't all hit, you know. Exactly. So you have to do all that in-season work. Yeah, you can find pitching, but can you find four new pitchers to be full-timers for you? you Like a steady Eddie like Shields, especially if we're valuing him at about 35 based on sober projections and he's falling to 50, then then I'm then I'm back in. Then I'm saying, well, James Shields should not be here anymore. So let me just take that and, you know, rework the rest of my board a little bit. Somebody like a James Shields also allows you to take this next guy with a little bit uh, of more comfort, and that's Steven Matz. And actually, we have him. This one's an interesting one, so I definitely want to hear your take because uh, Steven Matz's ADP is actually up at 30 in NFBC drafts, and, and so that's pretty high. I think he's kind of getting – that uh, the, uh, there might be a little bit of a New York Mets starter starter tax these days because of the three studs. Maybe oh, everybody see. else is kind of getting picked up with him. So he's all the way up at 30th in ADP, but 56th in our rankings. Pretty big discrepancy, uh, probably without having done the numbers, probably one of the biggest that we have, particularly if you're talking about you know, top 60 pitchers and above, because there could be some craziness way down low where we have a guy a hundredth and he's being drafted, you know, 180th or something like that. So we're talking guys who are going in every mixed league. Where do you stand on mats given that big discrepancy? Where do you lean closer to our rankings or closer to his ADP? Well, the auction calculator has him at basically, uh, let's see here. Yeah. 50th. Um, which I agree. I, I, so, I'm much closer to that than those uh, that ADP that he's rocking. So fiftieth, right by the calculator, just to give you the context that we're talking about here, puts him right around James Shields. What we're talking about, uh, Hyunjin Drew, um, Jason Hamill, Mike Fires, Michael Waka above Michael Waka, garbage. George Zimmerman. Don't want to hear that noise about Waka. He's a beast. Right, right. But uh, in terms no, of I, start- I, I totally understand why they have especially Jordan Zimmerman, the, the guy who never has, who always has a better ERA than you think, given his strikeouts and walks. So um, that's why those guys are there. But it's you know, if your draft was following the auction calculator, Stephen Matz would leap off the page as like, oh, gotta get him. I mean, I'm not picking Clay Buckles. We've talked about that a million times. I like Colin McHugh, but if I can get Stephen Matz over Colin McHugh, I'm gonna do that every day of the week, especially at 50, yeah. 50 pitcher. Yeah, right. But we know, therefore, that he's going at thirty. So you have to say, well, am I gonna am I gonna reach to, to get him at thirty? Let's see here. At thirty, there's Kenta Maida, who I would take uh, Matz over Maida any day. But right above that is the group that really gets hard: you Darvish, Tyson Ross, uh, Drew Smiley, Francisco Liriano. You know, I could still see pushing Matz into that group, but the problem is that we have such little track record, and even sort of looking at his pitches, you know, there's the 94-mile-an-hour gas, yes. But what if he's more Andrew Kashner than we want to admit, sort of a lefty Andrew Kashner? Because the change got 15% whiffs, the curve got 11% whiffs. That represents a lot of progress for him. He worked really hard on that curve, and that's great for him, but he got it to league average. And the change up at 15% is not a a plus plus and by movement it looks okay but it's not uh it's not going to blow anyone away in movement but it does have a 10 mile an hour gap so if you believe in that you're thinking he's going to throw that change up more next year as like another wrinkle that people aren't ready for and he's just going to blow everybody away and and that's fine that's totally believable but um it hasn't necessarily happened yet 
Yeah, I, I, I think you're right on there, and that's why I can't get him into that group because we haven't seen enough. And everybody that you mentioned in that upper group in the 30s, uh, to early 30s to mid-30s, is, is a bit more proven. So maybe I can come up on my 54th ranking. You know, if I see some something in spring or, or you know, uh, I, I pu push down a few guys. But right now I feel pretty comfortable. Again, that's two marks off of the composite, which has him at 56. And the highest anybody put Steven Matz was 47th, and that was Zach. So based on our rankings, if you're going to follow our rankings uh, and you want Matz, you're going to need to make a manual adjustment because our rankings aren't going to get him for you. Uh, based on what the market is saying right now. They're very excited about him. Mm -hmm. Let's jump down a little bit, though, uh, about another tier or two here and talk a little bit about Jimmy Nelson. I was, is there more to Jimmy Nelson, or, or is this kind of it, like a 375 to 425 ERA kind of pitcher? Now, that, by the way, that might sound like a big gap, 320, 375 to 425. It's really not over the course of the full season, y'all. So uh, that, that's... Well, just basically, it places him... In the context of guys that are usable but not 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 targetable, exactly. Not the and target. They're just the kind of guys, you know. Do, do you think there's more to Nelson, or or is that kind of it for Nelson? Well, I mean, the, the famous thing is that he that he added the the curveball this last year, and and it, and it was and, nice. It, it gave him some consistency. Yeah, and in 11% whiff, so just another. It was an average pitch, and between the curve, 11% the slider, which is not quite elite, but it's pretty good. 21%. It's up there, and he threw it a lot, so you know, still gets a lot of whiffs. And then the four seam actually does really well with 11% whiffs, so it's got good gas and, and decent movement. So he's those three pitches represent the way forward for him, I think. Um, and it's just that the four seam gets hit for homers and gets hit for homers, and then the slider gets walloped for homers against by lefties, and it. He, he like I don't know if he can survive as just forcing curve against lefties. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes. Like, he has to throw the slider sometimes, or he has to maybe throw a cutter or something like a different version of that slider because it gets whooped. And so, you know, yeah, his home his, his home runs problems off the four, off the fastballs are are iffy. That's about that's that's about command. I don't think he has great natural command, and sometimes he puts those fastballs in the wrong place. But the 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 slider goes the slider against right-handers. The slider gives up home runs, gave up zero home runs last year. Zero. Wow. 266 times, gave up zero home runs. He threw 115 sliders and gave up 2.6% home runs. So that's... To lefties? Uh, that's probably like five home runs. So he gave up like five home runs, on, or three, four home runs on 115 pitches, and he gave up zero home runs to righties on 366 pitches. So Jimmy Nelson... That he's got the the platoon slider the, of you know out of hell. So I I think I'll say that the, there is a little bit of upside represented in the fact that he got that curve mm -hmm. and the curve didn't give up home runs to lefties. So he's got something, and now he's just looking for like one more wrinkle. Maybe throwing the slider and fastball counts to lefties. You know, maybe there's a sequencing you know, sort of tweaking and put on it, get rid of those home runs against lefties and be better. Not necessarily amazing. Yeah, not, be not great. Like, you know, be but RA guy, you know, back end uh, with a lot of strikeouts, you know, so a, a good, a good 
four or five, you know? So more like a, yeah, like a three, five, three, six ERA with eight strikeouts per nine. And, uh, you know, like a three quarters of a home run per game or something. That, okay. That's possible, but yeah. it's represented by the fact that his swing strike rates are better than his strikeout rates. So you'd have to turn some of those swing strikes into strikeouts and you'd have to figure out something against lefties additionally. But, uh, I mean, there was there was progress last year. It doesn't necessarily look like it because he went from a 4.9 ERA to a 4.11, and you're just like, uh. That's why I wanted but, to bring him up, though, is because it doesn't look like there was much progress. But I think there was, um, particularly with adding the new pitch, you know, kind of working that in for Jimmy Nelson. It was his first full season. He does still have a 51% ground ball rate, which was a jump as well from 48%. So there were some little things. And, yeah, he's 27, so we're not dealing with a, a – a, a buttload of upside here, but there is there is a tinge, and I I think I wanted to get that represented um, with my ranking. I, you know, I had him 57th, so I was actually the high man on him. I, I'm not like giddy for Nelson, but I just thought that you know 57th, I, I'm I'm okay taking him there. But you know, he was down at uh, wow, Dan Dan Schwartz, not a fan, had him down at 118 among starters, and so you know. Not not really liking him at all. The other most of the other guys were right around the 70s. Uh, Paul Gustavo was right there at 59 with me, and then Zach had him at 86. Otherwise, the guys were right there in the low 70s. So some divergent opinions, but uh, I, I tend to be in lockstep with you, saying yeah, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of extra there if you can put some things together, but nothing that's really gonna drive you wild. And I, that's probably the same for this next guy, who's a bit more of a of a, a veteran. But there is the the intangible factor, and I'm wondering: Do you think will will Mike Leake get a sprinkling of Cardinal Devils magic, or just continue to be his his solid but uh, boring self? I yeah, I mean the the base problem for him is the same problem as in fact actually I think Mike Leake is the best case outcome for Jimmy Nelson with because, more strikeouts. Yeah, okay, a little bit, little bit different uh, approach because Leak's more of a sinker baller, and uh, and but Nelson's yeah, from a ratio standpoint, I but agree. So just from a point that uh, Mike Leak doesn't have a good changeup, and so he's basically done everything in that you can do other than develop a good changeup, and so in a way, I think Nelson could do uh, the the next thing that he could do is what Leak did, which is add a cutter, you know, so. Uh, basically, if you if you list league strengths, it's fastball, slider, cutter, curve, and then he throws the change up some, but it's not it's not good at all. Show me change. And it's, yeah, it's a show me change. So, you know, uh, it, you know, he's he's kind of taking the place of John Lackey, who's also another patron saint of the bad changeup club, <laughs> in that he's never had a good changeup. He made fewer than fastball slider work, and he's basically just fastball slider forever. But uh, Mike Leake. 9% whiffs on the four seam, that's great. 20% whiffs on the slider, that's great. 8% whiffs on the curve, not great, but, you know, he's about to kitchen sink you. And uh, he's got good command of these different pitches, and, you know, he's athletic on the field. And I, I just think he, he, in real life he makes this stuff play up a little bit more than, you know, our wins above replacement metric has him down for. But in fantasy, he's never going to get you even six strikeouts per nine. He's never really going to be a whip master for you. And now he's going to the worst worst ballpark of his career, although I guess that might be about the same as, as Red's park. But. Oh, for the, the, the Cardinals park's probably better than the Red's oh, no, park. Oh, no, I forgot. I thought, for some reason, I had him going to Diamondbacks. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, no. It'll yeah, be yeah. The, best they were, the Diamondbacks were talking to him that whole time, but that's why. Yeah, he's gonna get some Cardinals Devil Magic and put up a two-five ERA. Uh, uh, he, well, you know, he's never, he's never the best. He's always given up a home run for nine. So if, yep. if that dropped down to, you know, 0. 0.75, 0. 0.8, then even just by going by his projections and only dropping the home run rate, I think you'll you'll get more of a three-seven type. But that'll just be in line with what he's done, like three-seven, one point two. That's uh, that's not what he's projected for. I'll be, I'll buy that. So I guess there is a little bit of room if you're in a group of, of projection only guys that they think he's going to be a four ERA guy because the projections say he is. Then I think I would I would bet against that and and buy him for three seven ERA or so. But do I think he's going to be? Uh, no, I don't think he's going to be great. Yeah, um, that's kind of where I am with Leak as well. And then the strikeouts are so poor that that's what really pushes me off of him in general. I'd much rather go for somebody like a Jimmy Nelson who hasn't shown as much, but I think carries a better upside. Let's talk about two youngish lefties. Actually, they're 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 pretty they're pretty young. I think we'll call these young. Uh, Robbie Ray, 24 years old, or Alex Wood, 25 years old. Who do you like better out there in the NL West between those two young lefties? I. I don't think that I love. I don't think that I love um, Alex Wood anymore. And the, the problem is that I've come out against uh, Robbie Ray as well, so I may have to uh, take neither. Uh, if you're going to force me to pick one, I don't know. Alex Wood will have an elite framer behind the plate, uh, decent neutral home park, the fire of the ages under his butt, you know. In the in the other you know 15 pitchers that are on that Dodger squad, and um, you know I don't know some track record that we can point to, whereas Robbie Ray just has a really bad changeup, and he definitely pushed his profile a little bit better. You know, for me, I was surprised to see the velocity. So he definitely had better velocity than I thought, and he averaged you know over 93, and that coming from the left side is. That's like averaging 94, 95 from a righty. So yeah, it was impressive for Ray. The velocity was impressive. The changeup by movement and results is putrid. It's <laughs> it looks it actually it moves less than his sinker. So that's not good. You always want it to be better in one direction or the other, but it moves less than a sinker, both vertically and horizontally. And it basically gets worse rates than a sinker, which is also bad because the changeup supposed to be a secondary pitch that gets you good rates, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, basically it's interchangeable from a sinker, just a little bit slower. And I don't just, you know, that's going to be a big deal. I, the nice thing is he's a lefty going against righty and the slider actually gets 19% whiffs against righties and also 1.8% home runs, which is above what you want. So I, I don't know what his approach is against lefties. The six percent whiffs on the changeup against—I mean, against righties—is not going to get it done for Robbie Ray. So, as much as I don't love Alex Wood, at least Alex Wood still gets the ground balls, and maybe another, you know, set of time with Grandal will uh, will will have them on the on the same page. I mean, Grandal can really help, and I I did some analysis with Alex Wood about you know where he's throwing the ball and. You know where, what strike calls he's getting, and some of it was about the low part of the zone. So, if Grandal can really start stealing him some strikes the low part of the zone, I think Wood could actually get back to uh, some of the glory he'd seen before. And Wood got his swinging strike rate back up with the Dodgers as well. So, to your point about maybe working with Grandal more, maybe gets him back on track. They only had 70 innings, 
and they started to show some some turnaround. That 56% ground ball rate was nice, but he had yeah. some left on base rate issues that, you know, honestly, in a 70-inning sample could have been bad luck. I'm, I'm not a huge Alex Wood guy, but I think I'm with you in terms that I prefer him uh, between the two. Let me see where I've got him in my rankings. Yeah, I got them five five rankings apart, so honestly, it's a, it's a bit of a toss-up between those two for me, but I'll, I'll lean a little bit toward Wood. Um, one thing with Ray last year, it was he was kind of, you know, he's having good results. Things were looking good for him, but there was that danger of a 35% hard contact rate looming overhead, and I, I felt like he was kind of avoiding paying the piper for that, and eventually it started to, to come to fruition late in the season, and I think time just ran out before he could kind of fully regress there, so I do have some concerns about Ray when it comes to that. It just seemed that uh, you know he seemed to survive when, he was, when the ball was getting crushed and, and not really give up the hits. Meanwhile, you can make a case that it over-indexed the other way in his 29-inning sample with the Tigers in 2014. So it's going to be somewhere in between on those two things, because uh, especially if he keeps giving up hard hard contact at a 35% clip, which he's done each of his two MLB samples. So that's worrisome, and again, pushes doesn't have a little command bit either. I mean, I just uh, I don't see what the 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 what the intangible is that's going to push him beyond his tangible stuff. I mean, he doesn't have good command. And he doesn't have a good deep arsenal. No, and I talk about this a lot. You look at an ERA and a WHIP, and and if one stands out, you got to investigate and try to figure out which one doesn't really belong. When I look at his 3.52 ERA and 1.33 WHIP, I think it's the ERA that is is too good for him. I think yeah. that WHIP that that Ray allowed uh, is, is probably more indicative of what he is. Which now you're talking about like a a four and a quarter, maybe even a four and a half ERA pitcher. So I'm a little bit nervous on him, and I think there is some hype on Ray, which has me pushing away. Uh, you mentioned this other guy earlier, another young lefty, actually. John Lamb had a 580 ERA in his MLB sample last year, and yet, despite that, he's drawing some hype. And I'm actually okay with it. I'm not saying that to to clown those that that are are giving him some hype. It's just that usually a 580 ERA kind of gets you discarded and people ignore you. But I think the the market is is being smart to put a little bit of sleeper tag on him, understanding that those surface numbers. Uh, you know, they're, they're bad for sure, but they are small sample driven and they don't really get to the heart of some of the impressive stuff that John Lamb had last year as a 24 year old lefty for the Reds. Uh, keep in mind, this guy was a, a big time prospect with Kansas City, but then fell on major hard times with injuries, just could not get healthy and honestly really was starting to look like a bust. Uh, but, you know, just 24 years old gets in the Reds system on that Johnny Cueto deal. Joins the team, again, had a few good starts, but most of them were, were, were tough uh, when you're talking about 49 and two, uh, two-thirds innings of a 580 ERA. But I like 11 strikeouts per nine. The 3-4 uh, walks per nine is not great, but it's passable, particularly for somebody who had some command and control issues kind of throughout his entire uh, professional career. I don't know. I think this guy's getting healthier and kind of working his way back that he might be able to deliver on some of the, the prospect hype that he had. Where do you currently stand on, on uh, John Lamb? I'll take him over. The, if that was a threesome, I'd take Lamb. I, I totally I know, agree. Totally agree. And I know that he has the worst results out of the three so far. But, you know, if you look closer, I think he has the best swing strike rate. You know, and in terms of movement, he has the best stuff out of the group. Uh, just because across the board he has interesting movement in every in every pitch, um, he has a you know I've said this before, but he has 
uh, about two inches of rise over your regular four seam. So that's like a bit of a like a, almost like a Tyler Clifford type, um, you know, situation there with the rise ball. So that's going to lead to a lot of pop ups once he starts to, you know, figure out how to get pop ups from that instead of home runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that isn't that isn't exactly what happened last year, but I think that's that's in him. Uh, and then the changeup is elite. Twenty four percent whiffs is that's elite. And then the cutter got it must be must be more of a slider because it got fifteen percent whiffs. Um, and yeah, I, I think uh, it is uh, one of those hard sliders that they have trouble kind of classifying because it's faster than most sliders. Uh, so yeah. it, it kind of gets that that cutter slutter sort of deal, but it it's got some snap. I, I like I I watched I'd say three starts of of Lambs last year, and I was like, okay, it, I kind of it kind of registered why he had that prospect type. I even watched the game. I remember where uh, I think he went six innings, six scoreless innings against St. Louis. He had six walks and six strikeouts, and uh, you know, kind of the devil's game there. Six innings, six strikeouts, six walks. But you kind of saw all facets of him. You know, okay, walk too many guys for sure. You can't be walking six no matter how many innings you're going, but still got the six strikeouts as well. Really showed some impressive stuff. This is a guy, John Lamb, who's trying to figure it out, and he was figuring out at the big league level last year. The Reds, I think their last 60 games or so were started by rookies. They really let some guys figure it out. I think they're going to let guys figure it out again this year too. So there could be some bumps in the road for Lamb. I'm not sure that you're going to get, you know, a 3.20 ERA this year. But if I can get a 3.75 type ERA with the strikeout rate that he was given, 26% last year, because I do think that that's legit, um, at least to be in the 24 to 26% range. I'll take that from Lamb all day. That's why I agree with you. I would take him over those other two. Uh, granted, my rankings say something differently. I actually have him in between those two, but those were my early rankings, and now that I've even done more studying since releasing those, I can firmly say that I would take John Lamb over Robbie Ray and Alex Wood. It's definitely over Robbie Ray. Alex Wood has a little bit of that uh, proven track record. Yep. You know, if you want to give that to him, his his projections have a, a, a smaller variance, probably. But I'm a strikeout uh, whore, so I, yeah, I will I will right. be a, I'll I'll move back to although it should be noted again I'm not an Alex Wood guy, but I got to be fair. You know, he had a 25 percent rate. Uh, for a pretty foolish season, 172 innings back in 2014, and again, right. so he could he he does have the upside of, of of having that ground ball rate plus the nice strikeout. Exactly, rate. exactly. So I'll give but I'll give him that. a long time ago, and he's lost velocity since then, and he's lost bite, and his cha- pitches have changed movement, his his arm slots dropping. And those mechanics terrify me. Yeah, and you know at least Lamb is seems to be on the on the mend he seems to be like post-surgery wood you know? <laughs> yeah like... no he's on the rise i agree and and maybe and then, wood isn't on the decline but he's he's stagnated more i'd say and then the one thing i would say the last thing that i like about lamb is that uh and this is gonna be a weird thing to say all of his almost all of his home runs against righties came on the change now that's a weird thing for me to say is a positive thing uh just after i've said something similar as negatives for other pitchers but the reason I say that is because John Lamb's change is really good. And so you think it can improve. Lots of whiffs. But I think what happens is he threw it uh, – only the, only the cutter he threw more than the change against, against righties. And I bet you that he became uh, predictable with that changeup usage and that that's why there's that home run – that, you know, being predictable plus – everyone hangs pitches every once in a while. Mm-hmm. But you if you – if you hang a pitch in an unpredictable count, 
you still won't get the, give up the home run. But if you hang a pitch in a predictable count, they're looking change, and then it doesn't you know drop as much as you want, that's a home run. So I think he could actually mix things up, throw more curveballs, which have reverse platoon splits, and got 22% whiffs against, le- against righties. Throw some of those curveballs when they're expecting change-ups, and even if you hang the curve, it'll have such a different shape that you know they'll, they'll, they won't they'll, be blasting it. They won't be blasting. What, it. So, what about what about this? And I could be talking on my on my ass with this one, but uh, do you give any credence when, especially when you're looking at a small sample, to the fact that a lot of his home runs came against really good hitters? And uh, Adrian Gonzalez, Ryan Braun, Buster Posey, Lucas Duda, Curtis Granderson, Justin Turner, I think has has done enough the last couple of years to kind of get mentioned as somebody who you know, okay, you got beat by a, by a quality hitter. A couple of duds in there. Chris Owings not very good, and uh, Austin Jackson definitely on the downside. But you know, no homers to to clowns there. Th- those are some of the best of the best hitting home runs off of him. Just got to get a little bit better, and you could definitely see those t- that caliber of player taking advantage of something if it is a predictability issue. Do you put any stock in that, or is that just kind of out of nowhere? No, I mean, I think they have the, the the physical tools also to guess right and connect and, and hit him for home runs. So, you know, there's there's no sort of soft contact when it comes to, you know, Ryan Braun. If he's if he's got your number, he's going to take you loose. So, mm-hmm. uh, interesting to see Lucas Duda on there as a lefty. But, it was a grand uh, slam, no less. And Lamb gave up homers to left and right, so that's uh, that's obviously an issue. But um, uh, against lefties, uh, he didn't give up a single home run on any pitch that wasn't a four seam. So, uh, and I think that's I was going to actually say it also reeks to me of non elite fastball velocity, which is which is the risk with John Lamb, and is often a risk with these sleepers that I give you because if you had great velocity. And you had great secondary pitches. It wouldn't be such a sleeper. Be a great pitcher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that you, to be a sleeper by nature, you have to have at least one wart, or else everybody would already be on you. So I think, I think in that case, and you know, you look at his usage against lefties for Lamb: 103 four seamers, 11 sinkers, 16 changeups, 33 curves, 44 cutters. I think he can he can up that. I think he can throw a couple changes to lefties. I think he can, you know, throw more curves. I think he can throw some fewer four seams against them, and uh, and give them uh, a harder time. Didn't get a single pop up with his rising four seam thrown to same handed hitters. That's that's the situation in which you're supposed to get pop ups. You're supposed to throw your rising four seam in on their hands, and that's how you get a pop up. So uh, there's still, I think he can learn that. I mean, I think that's that's. Uh, that's risk, right? Sure. You want me to throw in on their hands? I might hit them. Yep. I might, you know, might leak out over the plate. You know, I'm not sure I can do that. But get them to do that all spring, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got some pop-ups uh, coming where there used to be home runs, and all of a sudden, Lamb is 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 a good pitcher. You know, <laughs> that's all. That's all it's, it's going to take is a couple sequencing things here or there, and a couple more pop-ups where there were home runs. And do yeah, that. I. I I'll 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 put my name on this guy no matter what. Yeah, do not sleep yeah. on Lamb. Uh, we we both share some excitement about him. Again, a former top prospect who could really make good and and you know they got Cody Reed in that deal as well. Brandon Finnegan. That deal could end up being amazing for Cincinnati when it's all said and done. All three of those guys uh, show some intrigue for sure. Let's let's 
shift all the way back to the other side of the age spectrum again. Let's talk about the back end of the uh, San Francisco rotation. Right now, Jake Peavy and Matt Kane are penciled in as the 4-5, which leaves Chris Heston as, as the 6, kind of on deck. Uh, I guess I'm going to just kind of a free-for-all. Assess those three. How do you value them, and do you even care about Heston since he's not penciled into the lineup in, in your mixed leagues? I don't think I want to have any of these guys in my mixed league. I just um, – That's fair. I mean – you got two you know, old guys who are who have been struggling, particularly Kane, and then you got Heston, who did some good things last year, had some signature outings, but it's certainly not uh, anywhere near elite. And I think people might be surprised if you have an image of Chris Heston in your head and you didn't have him on your team, you might be a little bit shocked to learn that he he wound up with a 3.95 ERA last year, uh, you know, despite the no hitter, and I think he had another no hit bid kind of deep into a game, a 10 strikeout game. Uh, so yeah, he had some signature games, but by and large, by the time the end of the season came around, he was just kind of bland. Yeah. And you know, one of the weird things for PV is that he's got this home away split, which, you know, doesn't probably surprise anyone. No, um, not San Fran particularly. Right. So he has a three ERA at home and the four ERA, a four ERA away from home. So even if you wanted to use them at home, you're like, okay, that's good. Except that the way he did it was he struck out five per nine and walked 1.6 per nine at home. So he basically just said, hey, here's a big old ballpark. You try to get, you know, you try to get some hits. <laughs> yeah, good know? good luck. I'll serve it up, and you're, it's just going right. to die out there into uh, Angel Pagan and Greg Arblanco's gloves. Right. And then on the road, he got eight strikeouts per nine, walked two and a half, and gave up 1.4 homers per nine. So when you finally got those strikeouts on the road, you got all the homers. So, you know, it's just uh, it's hard to use this sort of thing. Then plus on top of the fact that he's been off to injured and, um, you know, just, you know, and then Matt Cain is the same situation where not only it was Matt Cain now off to injured, because he's like hasn't been able to get clean, you know, from that the, those elbow uh, problems. But Matt Cain has his own sort of regression problems, where you're like, do we believe all those years of home run suppression or not? And you know, what do we what do we believe about Matt Cain's true ability to get pop ups and to to get to to suppress home runs and suppress BABIP? So, you know, with those that dual edged sword there, I just I, I, I'm super nervous about Cain. And then Chris Heston, you know, has very is very erratic. Has had some really bad games, and I think you talked about how you know he wasn't very consistent. And then, you know, he has some good stuff, and the, the sinker and the curve are good are good pitches, but he doesn't have a role. So, you know, of the three, I like Chris Heston best, but not in a mixed league and more in a deep league where, especially a deep league roto league, where I can put Heston on my bench and wait for PV to get hurt. That's sort of uh, my ideal situation. Yeah, every one of the San Francisco pitchers uh, outside of Bumgarner, so I guess four out of the five, are 30 or older. So I think Heston's going to get his starts, but, you know, how good are they going to be? So he's kind of a deep league uh, value play for, for some depth. I, I totally agree with you there. And by the way, you know, in terms of Kane, the two things can be true. Like the, the home run suppression from back in the day can, can have been real, quote-unquote, but – uh, it just might not be available to him anymore with the, both the health and the fact that his stuff is diminished. So I, I, I think 
everything that we were waiting for. You know, a lot of folks were waiting for the shoe to drop on him when he was putting those 215, 220 inning seasons together, beating all of his uh, ERA indicators. Well, yeah, he's, he's paying for that now. I don't think it invalidates what he did in the past. I think it just means, listen, he's an older guy and he's not healthy. And it's just, I, I just don't know if it's going to work anymore. And he's 31. That's not necessarily old. But now we're talking about two years where he's thrown a combined 150 innings. So uh, unfortunately, you know, out of those three, Kane is probably third on the list. And, you know, if we talked about this three, four years ago, you'd been like, no way, he's going to totally out. First off, Heston was like a nobody org prospect. PV was up and down, and then Kane was in the midst of dominating for 200-plus innings every year. And that's just how quickly it can change because he's only 31, and I already think that Kane is kind of you know, not done as a major league pitcher. I think he can be a four-something ERA for whatever he can last innings-wise. But as a fantasy guy, I'm not interested anymore. Yeah, geez, they have him signed – until 20, oh, it's only 2017. That's not so bad. Two more years. Yeah. You know, so we'll 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 see what he can do this year. But I I'm not I'm not comfortable with the kind of the home runs that he's allowing as his stuff has diminished. And again, we're going to shift now all the way back in back to the other end of the age spectrum. We're just bouncing back and forth here, and we're going to finish with pitchers here, and then we'll get a couple emails in. Are you drafting Lucas Giolito and or Tyler Glass now in mixed leagues? I mean, it's. It's a depth chart question more than anything. And, well, I guess what you would say is a depth chart and team, and team finances question. If you, uh, yeah, particularly I think for we, know, we know that the Pirates aren't going to let Glasnow break camp with the team. They'll let uh, Ryan Fogelsong, they'll let Kyle Loebstein lob them in there before they... <laughs> They uh, give up that those first two months. So the earliest I think last now come up, could come up is July. Okay. That's after the Super 2, so you get the full seven years of control or whatever. And I guess they could claim, we're sending you back down because we want to see your command improve. And, um, yeah, that could all happen, and then he could come up. And, you know, Ragan Vogelsong has a, has a shelf life. He has an expiration date on him. Um, and um, Jameson Tyon can't stay healthy, and Kyle Lobstein is is not good, and Nick Kingham's coming back from Tommy John surgery. So Glasnow is the sixth starter, and everybody uses their sixth starter. So uh, we will see them in the major leagues, and he's coming with a lot of strikeouts and good a good a forty five on his changeup. So uh, that's a, a decent grade for your third pitch. And just a question of uh, how how he's how he's going to command those pitches. Now Giolito has, you know, there's a discussion right now in the Twitter sphere about whether or not Giolito has an eight fastball, which means that he would have basically um, like a Kershaw sale type well, yeah. uh, fastball. Part of the but discussion all this is happening fastball right now. But part of the discussion is what does an eight mean when you're that, that's another big part of the discussion. Does an eight mean that you bring it in right it's, now into the majors and it and it's one of the best, or does it mean that you're gonna kinda get there? So that I think there's the discrepancy there as well. And he has that same forty five grade on his changeup, except that Giolito's forty five grade is a uh is accompanied by a higher possible future grade on the changeup. So Giolito is a better class prospect because people believe in his changeup. But I think that the lowered strikeout rate for Giolito and AA was, and the higher walk rate was probably related to that, having them ask him to work on the, on the changeup more. 
And uh, so I'm not as worried necessarily about him not reaching a strikeout rate upside, but I am worried that he worked all year on this changeup and it maybe didn't, you know, become dominant. Now it, it didn't quite yield the the results. By the way, both of them kind of did. Glass now took his changeup from you know a 35-40 grade to to that 45 last year. That was an improvement that he worked on to get that changeup better. So they both kind of worked on the same thing, and maybe Glass now uh, passed that that test a little bit better. But like you said, Giolito starts with the better stuff. What about the daylight in in terms of that uh, that rotation? Lay way less daylight for Lucas Giolito, I have to say, because, you know, there's Tanner Roark is, is the guy that he's facing. But Tanner Roark, you know, in terms of a six-starter, you could say that Yuzmero Petit is their six-starter. Exactly. That's exactly and, what I was going to bring up. And they've used Taylor Jordan in the past, and then and they have A.J. Cole. We don't know which fastball is going to show up with A.J. Cole in terms of velocity and where he is right now in the development cycle. So I would say that Petit and Jordan are more likely – you know, they're the blister guys. They're the guys where Tanner Roark needs a blow for a day. They're the uh, Roark has flu-like system of stuff, flu-like symptoms. That that's Petit and Jordan. They come in and and, and they do a spot start, six start stuff. So Giolito comes up if Tanner Roark just is like untenable, four point nine ERA and plus, and just can't get anybody out. Then they then they turn to Giolito again in July, but. You know, having seen Roark pitch for a while, I just don't think that the the I think he's a high floor, low ceiling guy that's just going to bumble along, be fine as a as a as a fifth starter. I doubt that he's going to be so bad that they need to reach Giolito. Um, and I think the team is going to be really good. And I think Joe Ross is going to be really good. If you go Scherzer, Strasburg, Gonzalez, Ross, you don't really need to you don't need to push Giolito. So Giolito hasn't quite figured out the changeup. You you let him figure it out a little bit longer. Uh, whereas, you know, the Pirates, you know, they never want to push things. Like, they just want to be as good as they can be, and they don't necessarily want to lose the development time and stuff. But that rotation has so many holes in it. I mean, you've got Cole. Liriano's hurt all the time. Nice has been getting crappier. Jeff Locke has been getting crappier. Vogelsong is crappy. <laughs> so that's, I would say, I would be more likely in a redraft league to pick Tyler Glass than I'll to put him on my bench. Yep, I, I, I can I can definitely get behind that. I when I'm ranking them in terms of for their impact, I gotta put Glass now a little bit ahead. If I'm going more of the long term, it is Giolito. I actually think that Giolito could could get up though and, and, and sustain a little bit sooner. I, I could see June for either of them really, because of Pittsburgh was easy because they they like you said, outside of Cole, there's a lot of open space. I just don't really buy Roark. And the one thing about Ross that uh, the only thing I worry about, not necessarily the talent. But how many innings is he is he likely to get? One other name we have to mention with Washington, though, uh, Bronson Arroyo. You know, the 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 crafty vet is also you know non-roster invitee. If he's healthy, Dusty Baker favorite that could also keep Giolito down uh, longer as well. So they've got kind of those two veteran guys who can work as swingmen in Arroyo and Petit, and an actual prospect. Definitely not as high as Giolito, but A.J. Cole, a one-time quality prospect. So, yeah, I think Glass now is the guy you have to take if you're looking at fantasy impact for 2016. All right, you know, let's do a couple emails and then finish up here. First one's from Joe. He's talking about a new auction league. Hi, guys. I'm taking part in an auction league for the first time. I took the advice I heard on the podcast, and I'm using the auction calculator. It's a very good tool, but the league I'm in is a keeper league. It's also my first time in a keeper league. 
teams can keep the 30 highest priced players at auction for two years. All other players can be kept for three or four years. Since this is a keeper league, should I take the auction calculator valuations and add more value or subtract some value for certain players? Or should I not just or should I not adjust the calculator totals at all? Not sure if it matters, but it's an AL and NL, so mixed league, roto, 15 teams, standard five by five. What do you think, Eno? Well, the one nice thing is that the auction calculator does have like once the keepers are set, the auction calculator has an option where you can put in keepers and it'll try to do your inflation for you. And that's inflation is the key term here because you have to adjust somehow because, you know, if someone if some guy's got trout at ten dollars, you know, then um, it's like 30 bucks off the t like that will not be yeah. spent there. That's going to have to go back into you know, that's just a one-off example, but yeah, you have to adjust those for dollars, that. And, and and you're going to assume that most of the guys keeping guys are going to keep them under their under their price. I'm not sure if I'm. I don't know the highest priced players so, for two years. I don't know what that means, but I. Well, uh, the, the, the I would assume that you would only keep guys that were priced lower than their value. So, I think there's probably still inflation in this league. Certainly, but I, I think it probably means like if you if if Trout isn't at at you know this seems like maybe a newer league if Trout is already at like a thirty five dollars or whatever, but somebody still wants to keep him because you know that he's going right. to go for forty whatever, he can only be kept for two years, probably something like that. So I don't think you have to worry too much about that distinction of how many years can be kept with the prices. Uh, Joe, I think your biggest concern needs to be getting that valuation in there, that, that, that inflation and using the, the auction calculator to generate those keepers to figure out how the price has changed. So nothing that you have to do manually except put the players in at whichever price. Now you might have to guess too. Obviously you don't know exactly who everyone's going to keep, but even if you just do some guesses before you turn in your keepers to kind of see what you want to do for your valuation. And then obviously once the keeper date is set, you can put in the actual one. So I think that that will answer your question there. Um, and I, in terms of a first timer, you know, are you saying just uh, just focus on getting good value, or are you keeping any of the uh, maybe those guys who are priced at twenty but they're thirty dollar values? Do you do that more, or do you go for more of the guy who's five dollars cost but fifteen twenty dollars of value? Um. All right. Yes. Like, are, are, do you lean toward the the more star level player, or do you go for kind of that mid tier who could break out, and and, and then that five dollar guy could be a thirty dollar guy. Like AJ Pollock was probably a five dollar keeper for teams last year, and he ended up you know beasting out. So, what range are you in? Do you lean, especially for I, a first timer? I I would uh, focus on trying to get guys at the most value as possible. So yeah, a lot of like five to ten dollar guys. The more the closer I get to contention, them the more likely I am to keep a stud that's close to his price, just so that it's sort of like cost fixing. Where I'm yep. like, you know, yes, this guy is only worth twenty five compared to the twenty I own him at, but it's a twenty five dollar player, and I want to have that twenty five dollar player. So I'll take I'll take him even though he has less of a surplus value. So. I think that's also a key thing to to understand when you're talking about how teams work because we talk a lot about surplus value in real in the real life game and about how players you know have a surplus value but you still even though Cole Hamels was paid close to what Cole Hamels was worth it was still Cole Hamels so the the Rangers still had to pay a certain amount in prospects because it was still Cole Hamels you still know great like player yeah it's only a certain amount of Cole Hamels's so you know that I think that 
it does have something to do with where you are on the win curve as a team, as a keeper team. You want to think about how close you are to winning because the closer you are to winning, the more likely you are going to need to need these stars, even if it's like close to this, the price that they're uh, you're keeping them at close to the price they're worth. So that makes sense. I guess I hope that that I hope that answers. But you definitely have to do just in general. You do have to do um, some some thinking about your your values, and I think. Even no matter what happens, and I say this all the time about the auction calculator, no matter what happens, that auction calculator list is not the be-all and end-all. What you need to do is early on discover where the league is going in terms of prices. So if you have no player, because auction calculator do this, they'll say that no player is worth more than $40, or maybe one player is worth $40. You go into the into the auction and you see Anthony Rizzo go for $45. What you immediately know is that everybody above Anthony Rizzo is going to go for more. And that $40... Or, like, or likely to. Right. And that $40 is the entry fee for the first, the top 10 players in the league, probably. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then your decision to make after that, and I think Larry Schechter talked about this when he came on the podcast with us, was... You know, just try to find the guy that you can buy at value at the top because you need to spend your money and you need to buy into those certain tiers. So try to find the guy who's worth 40 that you paid 40 for. But I think from my experience and a lot of different drafts I've done, that's not even possible. Sometimes you just have to pick the guy who you have down at 38 and you paid 42 for, you know, just to find the guy that you don't spend too much on. Yeah, just get those those kind of quote unquote guaranteed stats. Um, even if they're not 100% matched to the value. I definitely agree with that. Let's jump over to the next question. TJ has a question about international players. What goes into your projections of players that are coming from Japan and Korea? And how does that differ from players coming from places like Cuba? So what, what do you think? You know, d Does it matter the league that they're coming, the country and league that they're coming from? Or do you have kind of a base idea of imports regardless of where they're from? Um. I mean, when it comes to projections, and I don't really have any of my own, but if, when it comes to projections, you basically just look at all the players that played in America and played in, in that league, in Japan, Korea, Cuba. So that's the same basic process for this. It doesn't matter if they're Japanese, Korean, or Cuban. You, 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 um, you, you, you just look at players who have played in both leagues and try to find out what the translation factor is. And then apply that to their 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 players. Now, uh, Japan has the healthiest, most robust um, connection between the leagues. Mm -hmm. There are the most players that have. There, you know, we've also had a lot of American players come out of MLB and go play in Japan. Yeah, it's, it's a back and you forth. Don't, uh, yeah, you don't have that for Cuba. You have a decent sample of Cubans that have come over here, but we've never had an American go over and play in Cuba. And, um, you know, Korea has actually had some Americans go over there and play there. Alan Webster oh, is going to Korea. They go over there and they're obscene. They put up obscene numbers like Gong and Park have put up. Like, I don't know if folks remember Eric Thames, Tims, however the heck you say it. I actually think he's Thames and then Marcus was Marcus Tims. I know, I think the two were different. But either way, uh, a semi-prospect for Toronto and I think Seattle back in the day never really panned out. Goes over there and I think he's hit like 40 bombs each of the last two years. So it is interesting when you see kind of those middling MLBers go over to the Korean League and dominate. Uh, we definitely send more players over to Asia. Like you said, we, we send players over to Asia doesn't happen with Cuba, which does make the comparisons a little bit tougher as well. Yeah, and then Cuba, 
uh, you know, where Japan and Korea, they have, they may have different philosophies on, on how to work out and how to eat and how to warm up pitchers and warm them down and how often to throw them. They are generally first world countries that they are first world countries, Japan and Korea that have, uh, that have good hygiene and good, you know, nutrition and good workout facilities. Whereas the players that we've seen come from Cuba are coming over skinny and having to, you know, do a big workout session before the, all of their, all of their scouting tours. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, you know, every, to a man, every single guy who's come over from Cuba has talked about how they had to change their nutrition, how they had to change their workouts. Rice Iglesias told me all about that. Even Odrisama Despania has talked about that. So, you know, and he doesn't seem like a guy where that would matter that much, but, um, well, remember, Puig. Some of the some of the analysis on him earlier was that he was fat, you know, just yeah. a fat guy that uh, we're not gonna we're not sure how it's gonna work. So he kind of put on that weight, but didn't necessarily turn it into anything, uh, and that was a concern with him. Obviously, now we see Puig pretty lean, although he himself called himself fat coming into the uh, coming into spring this year. But I think he's just uh, riling folks up. Because he likes to do that, but that's uh, that's gonna be it for the for the emails. We're gonna jump into a little bit of off topic for the last couple minutes here. I presume that you watched the game yesterday, but maybe you didn't. Um, under the assumption that you did, you know, what was your favorite Super Bowl commercial? You gotta remind me of some. I I was. Uh, well, I can tell you the best one. I can tell you the the guaranteed answer was the one with all the wiener dogs. And they were in the little hot dog costumes running toward the Heinz ketchup and mustard. And that was <laughs> literally the best commercial ever. So I don't know that there's even another contender. But I think some people, there were kind of split opinions on the Doritos baby, the one where they're like at the ultrasound. So you can kind of see the baby in there. And then he's responding to the Doritos. And mm. the, the payoff is like, I think the guy like throws the bag of Doritos over in the room and the baby comes out of you know they don't show right. anything but it was an interesting finish to the commercial and again that got some laughs at least in the room that i was in it also got some eye rolls i won't tell you who those were from I'm trying to think of the other ones that were oh there, i don't know did you see that one where it was like a, a dog monkey what was, oh, it was a stupid combo. It was so stupid. The thing of it is they were all really crappy except for the wiener dog one, and I was just using this as a way to bring up the wiener dog commercial. If, uh, if you want full transparency, that that's all well, I was doing. I'll just use it to bring up beer then because I was drinking um, Sip of Sunshine from Lawson's, uh, Hetty Topper uh, from Alchemist, and uh, Treehouse Julius. Uh, th that's basically – three of the best beers in New England right now oh, wow. and three of the best beers in America. And we were kind of doing a little bit of a taste test one by one by one. And um, so we had the kids running around. We're tasting these beers. The game seems really boring. Oh, it was and, so boring. And uh, the commercials just weren't enough to get me to the table. So there was a lot of, you know, sort of running around and, and dealing with things and, and uh, a lot of muting on the TVs and stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think those, it's a bit of an overrated experience. I saw somebody, um, uh, talk about the biggest trick that the Super Bowl ever pulled was 
convincing us that the commercials were walk, worth were wa- worth watching. Here, here's the thing. That, that's not true because they used to be. They, they legitimately used to be good. They used to be creative. Now, we're probably talking a decade ago at this point. And the fact <laughs> is they've gotten so tired that maybe – after a decade, okay, maybe that's the case, but it, it, that used to not be the case. Maybe I'm maybe I'm remembering the glory days a little bit too fondly, but I swear that they were just way better. Uh, you know, maybe again upwards of a decade ago, which I guess is a long time, and the expectations are just so high every year that it, it's kind of like, a, oh, this is it. So there, there was probably that that tipping point where it went from they continued to surprise and shock and impress to the expectations got so high that there's probably no way that they can possibly live up to them as a set of commercials. I mean, I just, yeah, they're, they're, they're no good anymore. They're garbage, except for the wiener dog one. That was, that was brilliant. Heinz, the best movie ever made. I'm going to go buy five gallons of ketchup tomorrow. It worked. It worked. And, uh, for me, Hetty Topper is overrated. Uh, not, uh, was not, it was the fourth best beer I tried yesterday. Oh, and, uh, isn't that highly rated at beer graphs? Oh yeah, it's like top top. It's like I think it's the top beer. So I think so. Uh, I don't even drink beer. I it's overrated uh, by my own website, and um, I don't even think it's a top ten beer for me. It's it is really number one school. by a margin, by like a substantial margin. Yeah, it's. I think it's really old school. It tastes like. A pine bomb, it's, it's just all pine needles and resin, and uh, not enough, uh, and not enough new, new school sort of fruitiness and, and uh, juiciness, as I call it. Just a kind of real old school IPA. Well, there you have it, folks. You, you come to us for the, the the pitching advice, but you get the beer advice as well. So <laughs> you, you kind of know what to take into your draft, and you're not going to be drinking some overrated ass heady topper while you're trying to draft John Lamb. <laughs> we're out here to help you, and we're going to be back. Uh, don't forget our new schedule now. We're going to be Mondays, Wednesdays, so we'll be back. Jason and I did take the Super Bowl off, so if you're waiting for that episode, you're, you're going to be waiting a while, uh, at least until next Sunday. So, you know, we'll be back in a couple days. Uh, I'm glad that it's officially baseball season, at least as far as we're concerned, and uh, hopefully you're, you're going to be ready to veer away from pitching because after double, back-to-back episodes of, of all pitching, we're going to have to talk about some hitters next time. So I'll talk to you in a couple of days. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. <laughs>